Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. Matthew 5, 38 to 42. If you would like to use the Black Pew Bible that's in front of you or behind you, you can find it on page 1539. Matthew 5, starting in verse 38. Would you please rise in honor of this reading of God's holy and inerrant word? Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once again. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you that you have spoken to us and you have instructed us, your people, your church. And now we ask for your spirit to give us the understanding and also to give us the desire and the strength to obey your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And when we started this series going through the Sermon on the Mount, I mentioned how there are two erroneous ways of reading this sermon that are really diametrically opposed to each other. And I think the difference is most obvious when you finally get to today's passage. Jesus teaching us to turn the other cheek is arguably probably one of his most well-known sayings. But though we all might equally admire it, we don't read it in the same way. Some people are going to read these verses idealistically, and they won't expect anyone to actually live them out. Turn the other cheek is definitely a great ideal, and maybe in an ideal world we'll actually live like this, but it's argued that it's just not realistic. If you try, if you try to turn the other cheek in the real world, people are just going to walk all over you like a doormat. They will abuse you. They'll take advantage of you. So yes, it's an idealistic teaching for an idealistic age, but you can't practically live it out today. That's how some people are going to treat this passage. But then there are those, on the other hand, who are going to read these verses ideologically and expect everyone to live them out. Turn the other cheek becomes an ideology that takes the form of pacifism. It begins to shape public policy, foreign policy. So we have to just educate the public, rehabilitate the criminals, negotiate with our enemies. There is no justification for using force ever. That's the ideological approach to turn the other cheek, where it's applied indiscriminately to society at large. But I'd argue that both approaches are misreading the text. One side is not taking Jesus seriously enough as a king. 
They're not reading his commands as actual commands. And the other is not taking the sermon seriously enough as a sermon. They're reading it like a compilation of ethical statements, a list of proverbs that you can just kind of pick and choose from. But you can't read this just starting in verse 38 and expect people to turn the other cheek. You have to begin the sermon at the beginning in the Beatitudes. You see, the commands that we get to in our text are only given to those who are poor in spirit, who mourn their sinfulness, who hunger for righteousness. We we covered those Beatitudes already. Jesus as we've been saying, is preaching to his disciples. He is preaching to those who are already in the kingdom of heaven. So my point is, unlike those who read this idealistically, I believe the king's sermon was to be taken realistically and actually obeyed. But unlike those who read this ideologically, I don't think these commands were meant for the world at large. They weren't meant to be indiscriminately applied. The king was preaching to his church. Turning the other cheek is only possible for born-again people, for those who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God. So does Christ expect you to turn the other cheek? Well, if you're in Christ, then certainly. If you're a Christian, Today's passage is totally relevant to you. It is completely realistic. And my goal is to help you to see that, to have a better sense of what it means, what it looks like to not resist the one who is evil, to turn the other cheek, to volunteer your cloak as well, and to go the extra mile. I've divided this message into three parts. If you want to follow along, there's an outline in your bulletin. First, what I want to do is to help you appreciate the Old Testament law of an eye for an eye, because I don't think Jesus was actually rejecting that. Second, I want to help clarify any misinterpretations of what it means to to refuse to resist the evil one. And third, I want to demonstrate the heart behind non-retaliation. So the first thing I'd like to do is to explain the Mosaic Law's teaching on an eye for an eye. Because Jesus mentions that in verse 38. Now remember, in this section, Jesus is trying to illustrate the kind of righteousness that defines his followers, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's a righteousness, he says, that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, meaning that the righteousness of his people goes deeper than just surface-level behavior all the way down to heart-level obedience. And in each of the previous illustrations, he applies a very similar formula. He starts off by quoting what they have heard, so he's not referring to the Mosaic law itself, otherwise he would have said what was written No, he's focusing on what they heard, meaning he's focusing on the popular rabbinic interpretation of what was written in the law. So he's not challenging Moses, he's challenging the scribes and Pharisees' interpretation of Moses. So look at verse 38. Look at verse 38, it says, you have heard that it was said, 
an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now Moses does use that particular phrase three times in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 21, verse 24, Leviticus 24, verse 20, and Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 21. And those passages are all dealing with personal injuries, when someone personally wrongs you. An eye for an eye is referring to the ancient principle known as lex talionis. Lex talionis, that's Latin for the law of retaliation. Now, before you so quickly just write it off as being barbaric, you've got to put yourself in this ancient context where you don't have an established police force. You don't have an established court system and a bill of rights protecting you from cruel and unusual punishments. Just imagine the alternative. Without Lex Talionis, if I poke you in the eye with my finger, you might try to do the same thing to me, but with a stick. Or if you knock out my tooth with your fist, I might come back at you trying to knock off your head with a club. If you leave the pursuit of justice into the hands of individual sinners, we just make things worse by escalating violence. And so in that context, Lex Talionis accomplishes two very important things. First, it ensures a measured, even-handed justice. The punishment has to fit the crime. So if someone steals from you a, a bundle of wheat, you can't go and retaliate by burning down their whole field. That's not justice. That's just pure revenge. And secondly, secondly, when it comes to the responsibility to exact justice and to carry out punishment, Lex Talionis takes it out of the hands of the offended and puts it into the hands of authorized judges. An eye for an eye should not be a personal motto. It's not a personal ethic for how you respond to people when they offend you. But that was the case before the Mosaic law came to the people. People just sought justice with their own hands and they routinely perverted justice due to their inherent sinfulness. And so Lex Talionis is realistic. It accounts for human sinfulness and, 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 and human inability to exact justice on our own in a just manner. It intends for any retaliation to be a matter of the court to decide, and any punishment has to be equivalent to the offense. And so, friends, I think if you were living in ancient Israel, you probably would have appreciated Lex Talionis. You would have appreciated an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, for the way it restrains human evil and limits the degree of retaliation. That's what Moses taught. But, of course, what the scribes and Pharisees taught regarding Moses' teaching was not the same. Their error was their failure to recognize that lex talionis was not a personal ethic for the people of God. It's a principle governing the realm of the legal system not the realm of your personal relationships. The scribes and Pharisees were teaching God's people that if someone hurts you, if they offend you, 
you can get them back. You can hurt them back as long as you limit your retaliation, only hurting them as much as they hurt you. They would still consider that righteous. That's righteousness according to the scribes and Pharisees. But that is what Jesus is trying to confront in our passage. He is saying that God's people don't live according to a standard of righteousness like that, but to an exceeding righteousness that's enabled by the gospel. You see, civilized humanity will do what it can to limit retaliation. But gospelized humanity will reject retaliation altogether. Jesus goes beyond trying to simply restrain our desire for revenge through the gospel. He finishes the job. He redeems us. He regenerates us. He transforms our hearts altogether so that we don't even want revenge, so that we leave the responsibility of exacting justice to the courts and ultimately to God himself. So Jesus, friends, my point is, is Jesus is not rejecting lex talionis. He's just saying, leave that in the realm of the judicial system and don't bring it into the realm of personal relationships. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, should not govern the relationships of God's people. So remember, he is preaching to his disciples that he assumes are not just civilized people, but gospelized people. This is how he expects Christians, those who have been changed, those who are motivated by the gospel, this is how he expects them to respond when someone hurts you, when someone wrongs you. So look with me at his expectations for us in verse 39. But I say to you, to gospelized man, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, because there's just so much potential for misunderstanding here, I want to spend some time clarifying what Jesus means when he says not to resist the one who is evil. This is our second point here. Let's clarify the refusal to resist. The first thing that needs to be said is that Jesus is not suggesting that nothing can be done to restrain evil within society. Do not resist the evil person is not a principle for public policy. I know there have been well-meaning Christians. Leo Tolstoy was probably the most well-known for taking Jesus' words at face value, disregarding really the context of the sermon, and he taught that having soldiers and police officers and judges was unchristian because all of those people resist evil people. Now along that line of thinking, some are gonna argue that Christians should also be against retributive justice and only support what's known as rehabilitative justice. That's the idea that our judicial system's primary objective should not be to punish uh, convicted criminals for their crimes, but to rehabilitate them and to reintroduce them back into society. And of course, that's gonna lead into debates about capital punishment and whether or not Christians can support that. And to all of that, I'm sure Jesus would respond, you are missing the point of my sermon. 
because he's not dictating public policy or foreign policy. He is not advocating an absolute prohibition of using force to stop evil persons. And he's not rejecting all systems of retributive justice intended to punish those same evil persons. Otherwise, if if he was, then Jesus' teaching would be in direct contradiction to other passages in Scripture, like Romans chapter 13. You see, in the book of Romans, there is an obvious distinction being made between the responsibilities of the individual from that of the state. So that's why you have in Romans chapter 12, individual Christians being commanded not to repay evil for evil, to never avenge yourself, but to leave it to the wrath of God. That sounds a lot like Jesus in our text. But then chapter 12 makes way for chapter 13, and that's where the state is described as a servant of God, instituted by God to bear the sword in order to punish wrongdoers and to reward those who do good. So what we see is that the state has a God-given responsibility when it comes to restraining evil and punishing evildoers. And we, as individual Christians, we also have a responsibility. It's a different God-given, God-redeemed responsibility towards those same evildoers. I like what theologian John Stott says about this difference here. He says this, if my house is burgled, burglarized one night and I catch the thief, it may well be my duty to sit him down and give him something to eat and drink while at the same time telephoning the police. So his point is that Jesus wasn't forbidding a police force. He's just forbidding us from taking the law into our own hands. He's not entering into a debate here between the principles of retributive or rehabilitative justice. No, he's saying that our personal relationships shouldn't be governed by any principle of justice, but by the principle of love. So like I said at the beginning, this is the problem when you read a passage like ours ideologically, failing to read it as a sermon where you start at the beginning. All of Jesus' commands to, to resist, to not resist evil or to turn the other cheek, they are impossible to obey if you lack the gospelized qualities found in the Beatitudes. We've said before that the Beatitudes are like a guest list. Only those who fit the description, only those who are are born again can live out these commands. To expect, friends, to expect unregenerate people to live this way is really to contradict the gospel. It's actually heresy. You're suggesting that a non-Christian can live the Christian life without the Spirit of God. An eye for an eye is what a stable society needs in order to maintain order and to restrain evil. An eye for an eye is the best that we can expect and hope for. But once the Spirit of God enters and changes a man, then And only until then can we legitimately raise our expectations for that man to now 
not to resist evil and to turn the other cheek. Now, there's a second clarification needed here because I know there are those who would agree with me that you can't impose pacifism on society at large, but they would impose it upon the church. They'd argue that pacifism is the Christian position. And so while a sane society, of course, is going to have an army and a police force and penitentiaries and law courts, Christians should not participate in those things. So if you enlist in the army or if you enroll in the academy, you won't be able to keep Jesus' command to not resist the one who is evil. So what what do we say to that? Can you be a Christian police officer? Can you be a Christian soldier or or just a Christian with a licensed firearm? I'm sure many of you are are curious to know the answer, but I'm sorry, you're not going to find it here in our passage. That's the point I'm trying to make. If you're looking for passages that speak about a Christian's responsibility to the state, to the larger society, you don't look here in Matthew 5. You look in Romans 13. You look in 1 Peter chapter 2. No, but our passage, friends, is about a Christian's personal relationship, about how we respond when we are personally wronged. That's what our passage is about. So let's go there. Let's focus on the main point of our passage. I'm arguing that it's about a personal ethic for born-again people and their personal relationships that centers around the principle of non-retaliation. This is our third point. What Jesus does in verses 39 to 42 is to offer us four scenarios that illustrate the heart behind non-retaliation. Now, I realize that the person who's reading all of this idealistically is going to criticize non-retaliation as being just way too passive. I mean, really? Are you just going to stand by while people take advantage of you, while they walk all over you? But I'd argue, based on the four scenarios we're given, that there's really nothing passive about non-retaliation. My seminary professor, Daryl Johnson, used to say that non-retaliation, according to Jesus, is actually a very active response. It's where you go on the offensive to act in such a way as to change the, the, the dynamic of the encounter that you have with your offender. So let me explain what we mean there as we consider the four scenarios that Jesus gives to us. So the first is this. The first scenario is when your honor is attacked. Look at verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now this slap, think about this, on your right cheek, it likely would have been a backhanded slap from the person using their right hand. So it's a backhanded slap. Or even if it was an open-handed slap using the left hand, that left hand would have been in those days considered the unclean hand. So either way, you're dealing with a very humiliating, degrading gesture. That's what's focused on here, either a a degrading backhanded slap or using the unclean hand. 
Civilized man will respond in that situation by defending his honor. But gospelized man will respond, not passively by waiting for just another slap, but will respond actively by offering the other cheek. In other words, you don't just passively surrender to evil, you engage evil with goodness, with kindness, with a form of self-sacrifice. In regards to this verse, Charles Spurgeon said, we are to be as the anvil when bad men are the hammers. Think about that. An anvil is a very different thing than a doormat. People don't walk all over an anvil. An anvil is strong. In fact, they're stronger than hammers. And so the point is that a Christian who practices non-retaliation is no weakling. The Christian is stronger than his or her offender. That kind of self-restraint, that kind of self-sacrifice takes a vast amount of strength. But here's, friends, where we have to be very careful. Notice that Jesus doesn't instruct us to turn another person's cheek. What I mean by that is that if you see someone that is being physically abused, physically attacked, there's nothing in this passage deterring you from intervening and resisting the evildoer. Turning the other cheek is only concerned with how you respond to personal attacks against your honor, your reputation. The focus really isn't on the physicalness of the slap, but on the humiliation of that particular gesture. How are you going to handle that kind of an insult? Are you going to lash out in retaliation? Or are you going to respond with Christ-like strength in kindness? That's why I would also argue that this passage has nothing to do with legitimate cases of self-defense. So it's not talking about what you're supposed to do if you ever find yourself face-to-face with, 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 a drunken, um, with, a, with a violent drunk or with a crazed madman. It's not speaking to the woman who's in an abusive relationship or, or the student who's being victimized by a bully. In, in those situations, you have every right to shield yourself from harm, to turn to authorities for protection, to pursue any legal recourse. Non-retaliation needs to be distinguished from the reasonable response of not letting someone physically hurt you or even kill you. Please don't misunderstand Jesus as somehow permitting or enabling abusive relationships. Again, this first scenario has to do with how you respond to someone who is trying to attack your honor. Now, the second scenario is when your legal rights are violated. Look at verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In those days, people wore at least three layers of clothing. They would have the loincloth, which is like our underwear, uh, and then a tunic over that, and over that as well, you'd have an outer coat. And what's being described in verse 40 is a situation where someone wrongfully sues you to deprive you of your tunic. How are you going to respond? Do you retaliate? Jesus tells his disciples, 
not to. But again, a response of non-retaliation is far from being passive. It would mean, as Jesus says, to volunteer your coat as well. And according to Mosaic law, your coat was considered an inalienable right. According to Exodus chapter 22, you could not legally deprive an Israelite of his coat. So that's what makes this so significant, because civilized man is going to countersue in order to protect his rights, but gospelized man is willing to lose his own rights in order to win the soul of his offender. That's really how you turn the table on your enemy, because he approached the situation thinking that he's in charge. It was an opportunity for him to exploit you But by you offering your coat as well, you have totally changed the dynamic of the encounter. Now you're in charge, and you've changed the scenario into an opportunity for you to serve him. Do you see what Jesus is is saying here? Go on the offensive to serve the person. There's a story about Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China who was really the, the first among Western missionaries to intentionally look and dress like locals. One day he came to a river and hired a boatman to ferry him across. And soon after, a, a wealthy Chinese gentleman also approached the same boatman but was rejected, uh, being told that he'd already been hired out by another man. Now this wealthy gentleman didn't even bother to to look at Taylor in the eye. He just assumed that by his dress, this must be some some local commoner. And he, he rudely punched Hudson Taylor in the face and tried to commandeer his boat. Now, when the boatman protested and, and pointed out that you just struck a foreigner, the Chinese gentleman was shocked and, and he, was, he was quite ashamed. Now, Hudson Taylor later recounted that his first impulse was to push the man back in retaliation. But by God's grace, he shook it off and he actually invited the man to share his boat. And he shared the gospel with him along the way. I think that story encapsulates beautifully our first two scenarios. Someone deprives you or tries to deprive you of your legal rights and attacks your honor with physical violence. And yet, the follower of Jesus responds in an active manner to change the dynamic of the encounter with Christ-like strength in kindness. Now, verse 41, we have a third scenario where your rights are legally violated. It's a little bit different here. This, of course, assumes you live under an oppressive state that routinely violates your rights, which would perfectly describe life within the ancient Roman Empire. So look at verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Remember, the Jews were living under an oppressive Roman rule, so it wasn't unheard of for a Roman centurion to forcefully enlist you to carry his baggage, treating you like a pack mule. Now that word there for force is the same Greek word that's later used in chapter 27, verse 32, 
when Simon of Cyrene was forced by soldiers to carry Jesus' cross. So it was here, and in, in, it was the oppressor's legal right to essentially enslave you for that particular task. What do you do in those situations? Do you retaliate? Well, notice that Jesus' idea of non-retaliation in this particular situation is not a passive quietism where you simply accept your fate. No, he asks you to do something that takes a great deal of strength. You volunteer to go another mile. And in so doing, you change the dynamic of the encounter. Because think about this. If you volunteer to carry his pack, you're no longer his slave. You're now a willing participant offering a voluntary service. In a sense, you've liberated yourself. And I realize this kind of a scenario is becoming far more relevant for us today. You know, with all of the ugly stories going on in the news about police brutality, racial profiling, or government coercion of businesses and nonprofits to recognize a brand new definition of marriage or gender, these are all cases where rights are being violated with legal sanction. Now, within the ethic that Jesus brings, I, I think there is legitimate room for protest. We see Jesus protest when he was struck before the Sanhedrin. We see Paul protest when, when he's illegally arrested in Philippi. But the thing is, is that Jesus and Paul weren't protesting in order to, to defend their honor, but to defend the dignity of the law. They were protesting miscarriages of the law. And so, though there, there may be legitimate space for Christians to protest, in our text, Jesus is trying to move us away from a preoccupation with our rights. It's this preoccupation with, with, with our rights, with being treated fairly, with, with getting what we deserve that leads us to retaliate. So I, I, I say we should be ready to protest when you see injustice being done in, in society, but on a personal level, What's motivating you? Civilized humanity is preoccupied with fairness. Gospelized humanity is preoccupied with sacrificial service. Lastly, we have a fourth scenario that's in verse 42, and this is where your generosity is abused. Look at, look at the verse with me. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, given the whole context of the other scenarios, it's safe to say that Jesus here is not just thinking about your average panhandler on the side of the road asking you for something. In all the other scenarios, there's someone out to get you. So here too, Jesus has in mind someone who is trying to take advantage of you. What does non-retaliation look like here? Well, notice Jesus doesn't say to give whatever you're asked. Notice all he says is to give to the person who asks. So just giving whatever is asked 
is not always the loving thing to do. It's the passive thing to do. It's the civilized thing to do. But the gospelized thing to do, the active, more loving thing, is to actually discern and to only give what will actually help the person, even if he's trying to take advantage of you. Just like in all the other situations, a non-retaliatory response would change the dynamic of the encounter so that you're no longer the object of his manipulation. He now becomes the object of your undeserved kindness. Now, friends, I, I, I realize, I realize that all of this seems very daunting. I mean, you're wondering, how am I actually going to live like this? How am I going to respond this way when my honor or my rights or my generosity is being disrespected and violated and trampled on? It's so unfair. It's so unfair when they treat me that way. But church, I believe the only way we're going to let go of our preoccupation with fairness is by turning once again to the gospel. And by that I mean that we should be so thankful that Jesus' relationship to us is not governed by principles of fairness. Because if we just got what we deserved, oh, friends, we, we would all be condemned. That's why the gospel is the greatest news of all. Because the gospel says that Jesus, out of, out of a great strength and kindness, became the anvil, but really, he became the nail, while sinners like us are the hammer that put him on the cross. Let's get this straight. Jesus was no doormat. Jesus was no pushover. But when his opponents literally slapped him in the face and confiscated his garments, and forced him to walk a blood-soaked mile towards Calvary, Jesus did not retaliate. Even, even, though, even though through his own words, he said that he could call down 12 legions of angels, if he so willed, to rescue him from all that injustice. But he didn't. Rather, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So remember this, church. Jesus only calls us to do what he himself did. And whatever he calls us to do, he'll supply whatever it takes to obey. We need to continue entrusting ourselves to him who saved us, to him who judges justly. Let me pray for us. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for harboring bitterness against those who offend us, for lashing out in retaliation. Help us to let go of our obsessive preoccupation with always being treated fairly. Help us to endure insult and attacks for the sake of Christ and empower us to engage our offenders with Christ-like strength and kindness. Help us to trust that you do judge justly and to leave vengeance in your hands. 
May we as your church live out this particular command with your strength for your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.